0: Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall.
1: Yeah, and more often than not, these satellites are pointed at the Earth now instead of at outer space, which is also very cool. And, you know, like a lot of discoveries have come out of that. And, you know, we had the James Webb Telescope, which is one of the greatest kind of like, I would say it's it ranks as high as going to the moon the first time around, <laughs> but you know the satellites that are pointed towards the Earth are also super useful, and, and yeah, we can use them to benefit everyone.
0: Yeah, there's a nice metaphor there, where like you know, 70 to 50 years ago, we were pointing the satellites out into space and thinking about everything else that was out there, and now we're turning them back on ourselves being like, Oh, wait, we need to do some work to protect the, the planet that we're currently on as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think 50 years ago, the only people who were pointing it at the earth were CIA and KGB. <laughs> and now we've realized that, you know, actually, there can be actionable information from those satellites for every single private industry.
0: All right, Subit, welcome to the Keep Cool show. It's great to have you. Thanks for
1: having me. Uh, it's great to be here.
0: Brilliant. So why don't we start with a little bit of, you know, getting to know you and your background. How did you kind of get to a point in your career where you decided to work on climate and join Cloud to Street?
1: Yeah, so my background is in electrical engineering and digital signal processing in particular. And I was actually like very deep into kind of like being a technical engineer and working on kind of like signal processing and AI before I was in college in University of Florida and my professor kind of like introduced me to looking at satellite imagery, you know, which you think about it is a part of signal processing since satellite imagery, you know, is a signal, but I got exposed to kind of like the downstream uses of satellite imagery in agriculture. So like determining agricultural productivity, determining crop health. Um, Mm. and all that sort of stuff. And that ended up being the focus of my PhD dissertation, which certainly wasn't the plan, kind of like going into the (laughs) PhD. And then after my PhD, I worked in a bunch of companies, small startups in the Boston area, and then like a really big startup, which did kind of like, you know, soil carbon work, Mm. uh, sequestration. And yeah, I was really happy there. But like, you know, one of the things that I was aware of uh, is that We spend a lot of money on kind of like climate change mitigation, but really Mm. not as much on climate change adaptation. Mm -hmm. So the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction estimate that like in the last 20 years, a billion more people have been affected than the 20 years before that. And that is going to keep increasing. So no matter how much we do to mitigate climate change, which, you know, to be sure we should do as much as we can. We also need to think about how to mitigate the effects of climate change and adapt to you know like what is happening. And Cloud to street, being a climate adaptation company, you know, doing flood mapping was a great chance for me to do that and use my technical skills to help this problem. So yeah, about eighteen months ago, I joined Cloud to Street.
0: Nice, yeah, I love that setup, especially because I think this year in particular, Been so many kind of natural disasters and events around the world that have really hit home this idea that it's not just about mitigating climate change kind of with that future forward-looking perspective anymore. There's really a critical need to also, in the present moment, adapt to some of the things that climate change is already causing, whether you look at flooding in Pakistan earlier this year, which was, you know, catastrophic for the whole country. There's flooding in Nigeria right now, all kinds of, you know, we saw hurricanes in the US. I think that it's going to be a massive kind of area of focus or needs to be a massive area of focus for operators, folks building new solutions and investors really to fund it. And there's also a big opportunity to make a difference. So yeah, I appreciate you setting up the conversation in that way. I think that's a great theme to keep riffing on.
1: Yeah, totally. And you know, the UN estimates that we need to spend about $300 billion annually to adapt to climate change. Mm. Uh, And we only spend about $20 billion, which is, you know, a gap of (laughs) like 15x, right? So, you know, any way we can kind of like make that spending more efficient, you know, to actually address, you know, problems, I think is a great use of my time and other scientists who work on this problem.
0: Right. Before we jump into your work at Cloud to Street, I'd love to, you know, for myself, even, and for folks listening in, if you could kind of distill the topic of the signal processing that you brought up, like what exactly does that encompass? You gave us one example with the satellite imagery, but kind of what's the way to understand that type of work?
1: Uh, you mean like my background in particular, like the field of signal processing?
0: Yeah, maybe just a little bit of color on what that represents and perhaps it'll tie into your, your work at Cloud Street, I imagine.
1: Yeah, totally. So the field of signal processing is really big and it deals with taking any signals so any kind of like sound, Slash image slash any other signal you can think of and then developing algorithms to get something out of it. So you can think mm. about Alexa. If I tell Alexa something, then you know there's a signal processing algorithm that captures my command, parses it, and then lets Alexa know what the appropriate response is. So that's mm. one example. The other example is like self-driving cars. So you have a bunch of sensors. You know, typically you have image sensor and you also have LiDAR, which is, you know, a special kind of imaging sensor. And then it kind of like does some processing to understand what the environment the car is in and then kind of converts that into an action the car can take. So that's typically what uh, singular processing is and has been.
0: Got it. Yeah. Lots of applications for climate technologies. Certainly, I think, you know, you mentioned LiDAR. I think a lot of folks are using that for things like methane, leak identification and pipelines, and you already talked about satellite imagery for things like estimating soil carbon levels. Let's talk a little bit now about the work that you all do at Cloud to Street with building flood models and maps. Get us up to speed here. What are flood maps? What are flood models? And how do they get built?
1: Right. So, coming at it from a very, like, kind of, like, lay perspective, which is certainly how came it, I came into cloud street, you know, <laughs> given my background in agriculture and technology and not in flood modeling.
0: Right. And certainly my perspective right now, too. <laughs> and I imagine <laughs> yeah. many listeners. For sure. So, flood model tells
1: you two things. It tells you how bad the flood is and puts it into context with all the other flooding that has happened in the area in the past, like mm. however many years. So, those are the two things that you need. So, like, the extent of flooding, and maybe even the depth of flooding. And, you know, how bad is this compared to the last 100 years? Traditionally, to do this, you'd need to pay a very sophisticated engineering firm lots of money to like survey an area. And then you need to run the surveys again and again, because obviously places change. There's new buildings, there's new roads, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. You'd also need very detailed knowledge of exactly how high places are because, you know, like if you close your eyes, water flows from high places to low places. That's how, you know, it works. Right. And once you know all of that, you also need to know exactly how much rainfall happened or how much excess water was flowing in a river. And then, you know, kind of like how much water has like pooled in an area. Right. So those are few of the things. And then the other thing you need to know is how much water can be drained away. So like water has pooled in an area, some of the water is going to be drained away. And then the difference between those two is the water that remains. So it's a long and expensive process, but you know, there's an easier way. And that's the way that we do it at Lacta Street, which is look at satellite images of a place, and then
0: you know exactly where the water is. So Mm. super simple. Got it. And To kind of extend the conversation now to include, you know, why are flood maps important? My mind immediately jumps to things like creating insurance products for homeowners, but I'm sure that's only kind of one of the use cases. So what are all the different ways in which these maps get used?
1: Yeah, so you touched upon uh, one of the most important parts of how a flood model is used which is, you know, insurance policies. And, you know, that is very important because that's the major way that we kind of like respond to disasters is using the financial instrument of insurance. But actually like these maps are used in all parts of the disaster lifecycle. So the four parts are essentially prepare, alert, Mm -hmm. respond, and recover, right? So the preparation phase can be something like, hey, you know, like if you know what places have a lot of flood, you don't build houses there, you know, <laughs> super simple, right? Right. The alerting part is if there's, for example, this is a real life example, which is that if there's a flood in Bangladesh that affects kind of like refugee camps that are not near any big towns, which refugee camp do I direct my resources to, you know, given the fact that I have financial constraints and, you know, a near real time flood map could enable you to direct resources appropriately to a place where they can be used, you know, the most. So that's the alerting phase. Mm. Then the response phase is similar, which is like direct resources to the places that need the most. And then the recovery phase is monitoring the situation in and making sure that you like track how the water recedes. And, you know, then it's like safe for, more than first responders to go to that place. So in all those phases, I think having accurate flood inundation maps is super useful to kind of like the agencies that coordinate those efforts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good tie-in to the place we started the conversation, which is grounding a lot of this in kind of the adaptation theme and thinking about, you know, as the world's climate changes, and things like floods become more frequent and potentially also more intense with each step that you walk through. How do we prepare and respond to those events and ideally get out in front of them too? You already kind of started speaking to this, but I'd love to dig in a little bit deeper on how the maps actually get built once you kind of have that starting point of satellite imagery. Like what other processes are needed to build a really accurate flood model or flood map?
1: So the satellite part is... A super recent development we've had satellites for a long time since the cold war you know to be very particular but right now we have a really large amount of satellite imagery like uh, mm-hmm. you know only a single constellation which is the landsat constellation that the usgs operates has more than one petabyte of data uh in terms <laughs> of images right like if you were to watch a 4k show on netflix and consume one petabyte of data it would take you four years right? <laughs> that is a lot of data. Right, So you need to have the appropriate sophistication in algorithms to be able to parse that data and, you know, create actionable maps out of data. So I would say that the artificial intelligence machine learning side of that question, which allows you to kind of like intelligently parse that data is the other kind of like key thing. And the other thing that we need is better kind of like weather and climatological and hydrological maps Mm -hmm. Uh, so maps of where permanent water are you know maps of kind of like rainfall and all those things and that is kind of like a huge it takes a village to make those things and you know
0: they're also very important can that second set of information kind of like better information on topography water can that also be sourced from satellite imagery or does that also depend on folks kind of being on the ground in places taking surveys who do you rely on for that type of information?
1: We rely on like public and private agencies. We that's where we source the data from, and they make it in a lot of different ways. There's definitely some surveying going on, but a lot of it at this point is from like maybe not just satellite imagery, but aerial imagery in general. So from airplanes
0: or balloons, drones. for example, drones. Yeah, yeah, got it. And I like the point you made earlier. It's it's kind of important to remember that. You know, satellite imagery too, in the same way that there have been these really impressive advances in things like the efficiency of photovoltaic cells, the availability and reduced cost of it has been a big trend in the last 10 years and something that a lot of companies are still focusing on. So it's cool to tie that into unlocking something like the work that you're doing to build better models and maps based on innovations in other technology.
1: There's a lot of different kinds of advances that are being made in imaging science in general which, you know, is very well complemented by the advances in signal processing and the utilization of imagery, Mm -hmm. whether it be through kind of like sophisticated signal processing algorithms or machine learning or AI or, you know, all these other advances. And I think they're happening together at the right time to enable kind of these art science applications.
0: Mm -hmm. And so what, you know, paint a picture for us of how much better the maps and models that you're now able to make with this kind of, more sophisticated input data and also more sophisticated ways of kind of processing the data. Like how much better are these maps and models than they were say 20 years ago? And what does that unlock for some of your customers?
1: Yeah. So I would say 20 years ago, the way to make flood models is what I laid out, you know, at the beginning, which is Mm. you need a lot of surveying. You need a lot of kind of like modeling of like water flow to have a pretty inaccurate picture of where the water (laughs) is. Satellite imagery has been there for a while, but recently we had the way to utilize that imagery and made the kind of like development of the algorithmic site that lets us provide, you know, like flood mapping that can be actionable. So, you know, we at this point can provide flood maps that are like two to five times more accurate than like traditional uh,
0: flood models. Mm -hmm. And who are some of the the folks that you're already working with that are using those models to, whether it's if for use in insurance products or other things they may be working on? Who are some of those types of customers that you're already working with?
1: Yeah, totally. So we work a lot with kind of like traditional insurance and reinsurance companies to design policies that pay out when there is flooding. And we also work with a lot of kind of like national disaster management agencies. So for example, in 2020, there was like a major dam overflow in Ghana. Mm. And we gave the flood maps to the National Disaster Management Organization in Ghana with kind of like monthly reports of like assessments of flood extent. And as a result, like they were able to give uh, 780 cash vouchers and about 2000 sanitation kits and prioritize infrastructure damage repairs in places that were you know most affected. So that's like mm. an example of kind of like, you know, us helping in the respond and recover parts of the disaster life cycle. It's just you know a counterpoint to the kind of like things that you can think of like insurance
0: that are you know pretty simple. Mm-hmm. It kind of raises a couple questions for me. I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about you know this year in particular. I think we've seen unfortunately a lot of catastrophic flooding all over mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. What are some ways in which kind of your you're so close to a lot of this data and building these maps and models, how much more prevalent is, you know, this type of catastrophic flooding becoming? And what are some of the downstream impacts that you might be talking to customers about?
1: I can't think of any concrete numbers off the top of my head, but flooding has definitely become more and more common. Flooding in general, but like, you know, extreme climate events in like wildfires or droughts. All of them have become more common and their kind of like magnitudes are increased by climate change. Mm. So, you know, like from a very kind of basic perspective, you know, if you have like systematic warming of the atmosphere that results in higher amounts of water vapor, that results in higher amounts of rainfall, that results in bigger floods. Like that's a very easy causal life cycle to understand. Obviously, there's like many more complicated pathways that modulate the effect of uh, climate change that also result in kind of like bigger and worse disasters. I mean, it's easy to kind of like think about this year. But if you think about just like the last five years, they have been mm-hmm. the five worst years in terms of climate related disasters in the last century. You know, Harvey, Purdue, uh, Harvey, which was in 2017, is the biggest kind of like... Flood event after Katrina in the history of you know, right. southern United States. It claimed more than 60 lives and cost 125 billion dollars in economic damage. But in the same year, flooding in Africa actually caused 25 times more damage. Wow. Like in terms of lives. And you don't really hear that. I think like you hear that more now because flooding is part of the public zeitgeist in a way. But It's always, you know, it's in the recent past, it's been a huge problem across the world. And last year, if you remember the German floods, they also caused, you know, a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. Where I'm from, so I'm from Eastern India, from Calcutta. Like, you know, I have seen floods almost every other year at this point when I was growing up as well as now. So, yeah, there's a lot of kind of like these events. And the other thing to remember is that as we kind of urbanize more, the damage that these floods cause is just increased. And this was a topic that we covered in Cloud to Streets Nature paper that was published last year. And there's like a good paper that came out today actually by a flood modeling company that kind of like says the same thing, which is that the increase of kind of these like impervious surfaces in cities results in kind of like more catastrophic runoff-based flooding. Because if you think about it, if you have a natural landscape, it acts as kind of a buffer against floods, right? Like if there's a lot of rainfall, part of it can be just absorbed by the soil. But as you have roads and other impervious surfaces, they cannot absorb water at all. So the water just like runs over them and causes a lot of flooding. So it's a combination of like a lot of factors that have resulted in the situation where what we have today, which is in Pakistan, like, you know, a lot of the country was flooded and it was catastrophic
0: Yeah, it's a good point, too, that there's so many other implications of kind of studying this, right? Like if there's a whole, I'm sure there's plenty of folks who could base an entire fruitful career on like how to re-architect urban landscapes to be more resistant to floods. And there probably are people that do that. It also makes me wonder, you know, whether there are parts of the world or even just parts of this country that, you know, in 10 years, once the next time there's catastrophic natural disasters, like some of these places folks might not rebuild, like they might become fundamentally uninsurable. I'm thinking of some parts of Florida and things like that, where you have hurricanes and flooding. It makes you wonder at a certain point, if there's a lot of relocation of people that needs to happen, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I would say there's definitely parts of the coastline in this country that are uninsurable. Fortunately, unlike other countries in the US, we have a socialized flood insurance program Mm. that one of the arguments that you have might have against it is that it kind of enables people to develop in places that should not be developed in the first place, but it does help people out. This is not true in almost any other country. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in any other country, you'd need to hold private flood insurance policies That are unfortunately too expensive thinking about like Caribbean countries for example or you know South American countries or Asian countries and even parts of Africa so literally all except for kind of like Western Europe and the US uh, these insurance policies tend to be too expensive FEMA along with other national agencies have like what is called as managed buyouts program which are sometimes voluntary sometimes involuntary where they essentially tell communities, we'll buy your houses and, you know, like that will give you, we'll buy your houses at like market price and that will enable you to kind of relocate. Unfortunately, there have been a lot of kind of like racial and income disparities where these policies have been adopted, which results in, you know, sometimes like unfortunate effects. For example, there's like a series of articles in Grist which talk about buyouts in Houston and North Carolina, and, you know, it's usually kind of like racial minorities are like people with not enough economic means Hmm. who are forced to accept these buyouts, and, you know, they take decades, and in the meantime, you have to kind of live in a house with where the sanitary system doesn't work and, you know, where there's no trash collection and it's not just in Florida, it's in parts of Staten Island that this like
0: happens. Yeah. So it sounds like, again, tying things back to adaptation, like there are financial mechanisms in place to perform some of the kind of like relocation that needs to happen, but <laughs> it certainly sounds like they uh, could benefit from some significant improvement. And, you know, the point that you've been reinforcing, which I think is important most of the, that doesn't exist outside of the U.S. and many of the places that are most affected by flooding, unfortunately. So
1: yeah, I mean, we at least have the mechanisms to do that in the U.S. Other countries like don't even have any of that, if you speak broadly. And Superstorm Sandy was a huge kind of like reality check, I would say, for public agencies. I mean, Sandy destroyed our, you know, like infrastructure in New York. And a lot of kind of The conversations that people have had were after that. So for example, I mean, if you think about public infrastructure, the East River tunnel that connects the Amtrak corridor between New York and Washington, DC is like in a very bad state and Mm. those need to be repaired and stuff, which is also, you know, some of the kind of like infrastructure improvements we have to make. If there was another Sandy, like, I don't know if that tunnel would exist.
0: Got it. Yeah far reaching implications and consequences. I think folks don't always think about flood maps and flood models right away when thinking about all these issues, but it's definitely at the center of it. Tying it back to cloud to street a little bit, how has the business grown? I imagine y'all are getting a lot more interest and kind of have a decent amount of momentum because folks are starting to think about this a lot more, but tell me a little bit about what the last year or so has been like since you, or the last 18 months since you joined.
1: Yeah, the number of people who like email me asking for flood maps has definitely increased by a factor <laughs> of 10, I'll tell you. Wow. Yeah, we work with, again, like big insurance and reinsurance companies trying to kind of like create these insurance policies that people can use to mitigate the impact of floods. We also keep working with public organizations to aid in recovery. I can give you an example. So, you know, this was not this year, but in the recent past that there's a lot of kind of like refugee activity between the Republic of Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's like, you know, two bordering countries and there's a civil war going on. And there were kind of like 11,000 refugees that had to be resettled in a village in the Republic of Congo. And the person who was in charge there essentially, you know, asked cloud to street hey, can you give us some historical risk maps that show that the area they're being relocated to is safe? And we took a look through the entire satellite archive and actually saw that the area that they were being relocated to was at a very high risk of flooding. And so we informed WFP, who informed the Ministry of Social Affairs And they actually, in that case, decided not to relocate them to that area and relocated them to another area. And then in like less than 10 months, the area they were originally supposed to be relocated to got like completely flooded, like the worst disaster that the country had ever seen. So that's the kind of like response that we enable. Obviously, like that's a good story where Mm. our intervention, the World Food Program's intervention like actually worked. But there's tons of cases where, you know, they're not as happy, but, you know, we obviously like respond wherever we are
0: asked to. I mean, it's a great story. And I think that really hits home kind of some of that broadening of perspective that we started the conversation with, which is this isn't just for insurance products, which are also important, but there's real kind of immediate adaptation that can happen because of it. I'm also curious because you have a great perspective on it, you know, kind of artificial intelligence and machine learning. These are such trendy terms in tech broadly and and also increasingly in with respect to a lot of different climate technologies you know for someone who doesn't know as much about that whether myself or someone else listening in like what are the ways in which artificial intelligence practically kind of helps you do your job or improve the flood modeling that you do
1: yeah so detecting flood inundation is basically image recognition problem and like i said there's too much imagery to do it kind of like by manual analysis. The next kind of like more sophisticated thing that you could think of is make like a simple rule about what place is flooded and what place is not flooded. So for example, you could say, all right, the water looks dark, water looks darker than surrounding areas, especially when you don't have kind of the blue light reflecting off the sky. So if you're in the upper atmosphere, which the satellite is, it looks dark to the satellite. But then so does a lot of other things, like roads look dark, you know, tiled houses look dark. So you can't have, like, really simple rules. You need way more sophisticated rules. And you need to kind of, like, adapt those rules to the places you are looking at, right? So the road width, if you kind of, like, model road widths, roads are way wider in the Western world than they're in the Eastern world, and they might not have tar on them, right? So, like, they look different. So these kind of problems can only be really solved at scale using machine learning and artificial intelligence. Mm. And so that's, you know, essentially what we use. We use something called as convolutional neural networks that colloquially known as deep learning, which looks at a large amount of imagery and, you know, detects where there is water, which we have kind of like developed
0: in-house. Got it. Brilliant. And do you all have have you kind of made flood maps for most of the world where people live at this point? Or is it kind of on a case-by-case basis, you'll create maps when there's a need? We create maps when there's a need. So
1: typically what happens is that we see that there is a flood happening and either we have a client who has a long-term agreement with us to monitor that region or someone asks us to do it you know, as a response to a one-off event and then we kind of like acquire imagery for that reason and do the flood mapping, but, you know, it's uh, usually in kind of like days
0: after. Mm, Got it. Yeah. It's a much more practical use of artificial intelligence than when I'm messing around with (laughs) Dolly on my computer making (laughs) images. But I mean, it is kind of fun to see lots of different people who don't necessarily know kind of the applications of this stuff. For example, what you're working on kind of get a sense of what it's capable of and, and how it's improved.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that this is a very exciting time to be in the climate change adaptation slash mitigation efforts, because all these algorithms and the sheer amount of data we have mean that there's a lot of actionable insights. Like you said, you know, the methane emissions, for example, is like one of the best examples of that effort that is happening right now.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like the second space race, the amount of satellite imagery that is being created now, the amount of companies like trying to make it easier and more, more cheap to launch new satellites and stuff like that. There's a lot of attention being paid to that. And as you said, it has a lot of benefits to all kinds of different climate tech companies.
1: Yeah. And more often than not, these satellites are pointed at the earth now, instead of mm-hmm. at outer space, which is also very cool. And, you know, like, a lot of discoveries have come out of that. And, you know, we had the James Webb telescope, which is one of the greatest kind of like, I would say it's it ranks as high as going to the moon the first time around. <laughs> but, you know, the satellites that are pointed towards the Earth are also super useful. And, and yeah, we can use them to benefit everyone.
0: Yeah, there's a nice metaphor there where like, you know, 70 to 50 years ago, we were pointing the satellites out into space and thinking about everything else that was out there. And now... We're turning them back on ourselves, being like, oh, wait, we need to do some work to protect the the planet that we're currently on as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think 50 years ago, the only people who were pointing it at the earth were CIA and KGB. (laughs) And now we've realized that, you know, actually there can be actionable information from those satellites for every single private industry.
0: Right. Very smart. So to talk a little bit more about the financial and insurance product side of things, I don't know the exact number, but insurance has been around for hundreds of years, certainly ever since European countries started sending expensive ships out into the ocean to (laughs) explore the world. But with respect to the modeling work that you do, how is that changing the way that companies that you work with create products and serve customers?
1: Yeah. So like you said, I mean, insurance is one of the ways in which we as a society respond to extreme events traditionally disaster, you know, insurance has always been in the form of kind of like traditional insurance structuring. So for example, you can think of if you get in an accident in your car today, which I hope doesn't happen, but you know, if it does, what you'll have to do is you'll need to take proof of damage. So you'll take some pictures of your car, you'll submit it to your insurance company, let's say Geico, Geico will have an adjuster and a verifier. So the adjuster will essentially ask the verifier, has this actually happened? The verifier will give the thumbs up and the adjuster will tell you how much you'll get out of your total policy maximum. It's a very long process. So, you know, like this kind of adjustment processes can take like months to years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you're affected by floods, obviously like you cannot wait for that long, right? You, you need capital really soon. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that Cloud2Street is working on with other kind of like insurance and reinsurance agencies is an alternative form of structuring called parametric structuring. So here, what happens is that when there is a natural disaster like flooding, everyone who holds a policy in a certain zip code automatically gets paid the policy maximum or percentage of the policy maximum based on an index, So if an index crosses the first threshold, then everyone gets paid 50% of their policy max, for example. If it crosses a second threshold, everyone gets paid 100% of their policy max. So this kind of bypasses the whole adjustment and verification process because that's just done by the index. Mm -hmm. So it's way cheaper to administer because you don't Mm -hmm. need to send adjusters out in the field in very dangerous circumstances like if you're an adjuster you don't want to be in florida the day after hurricane ian like that you know that is very dangerous so you don't have to get through all those complications and it's very easy to get paid you can get paid like days after the event when you need the capital the most right yeah so yeah this is something that we are really excited about and that we are trying to work on with our partners
0: Yeah, and it's much more clear for customers, I imagine, too. Like, traditional insurance products can seem really opaque, but it'd probably be easier for folks to understand a parametric model.
1: Exactly. And if you think about, you know, even a non-flooding case, like the earthquake in Haiti in 2010 was one of the biggest kind of, like, catastrophes that happened. And they didn't, because, you know, they didn't hold this kind of insurance then, it took them years to get the money. But now they have a pooled sovereign risk scheme which is very similar to this where all the Caribbean countries essentially pool money together every year mm. and then whoever has experienced a catastrophe gets paid out. Like last year when there was an earthquake in Haiti they got paid out in like a month instead of like six years. So yeah, it's really effective.
0: Yeah. And are folks adopting this model to all different types of potential contingencies like wildfires as you said earthquakes
1: they're trying to so actually like the way in which this was first started was for crop yield in bangladesh i think the guy who invented it might have gotten a nobel prize but yeah essentially that's where it was used traditionally but now it's being used in a lot of different perils some perils are easier than the others i think like Flood is pretty difficult, but Mm. not as difficult as hail, for example, right? like (laughs) Hail is so localized. It's very
0: hard to (laughs) do anything. Yeah. When ice starts falling from the sky, then... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it like destroys entire parking lots of cars.
0: Right. Yeah. Sometimes you see those pictures of like golf ball or even bigger sized hail. Yeah. I mean, all these things that we have to think about and potentially adapt to, but appreciate there being folks like you that are smart with the technology and know how to help us get prepared. Yeah, it's a very interesting problem. Speaking of zooming out, what are some other you know, climate technologies that you're particularly excited about or perhaps other technologies that also enable you to do the work that you do at Cloud to Stream? I would
1: say that there is the technological side of it, but there's also, I think, a lot can be done on the policy side. Mm. I would say that policy is lagging behind technology. There's more technology that we can use, then there's policy initiatives that respond to what the technology is saying. So for example, climate adaptation has only received you know, 7% of the funding that we need. So we are unprepared for what the technology is telling us. Mm. And I think like, a greater investment in that kind of adaptation is definitely what I would put at the top of my like, wish list. Having said that, I think some of the things that we have in the U.S. but are not very common in other parts of the world, especially like really good weather forecasting methodologies, which, you know, in the U.S. we have a very dense network of infrastructure that lets us predict weather very well but it's definitely not true in like central africa and west africa. Yeah. So just a kind of like broader utilization of the technology we already have and take for granted across the world. I think I'm really excited about because that will enable us to do a lot better at detecting flooding in those parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And then the other deep tech thing that I am really interested about in is using machine learning for Modeling that has traditionally been driven by physics. So for example, predicting rainfall. Traditionally, this has needed a lot of atmospheric observations and a lot of very complicated physics models that have to be run on huge supercomputers to determine how much rain Boston would have tomorrow. Mm. right? But now there's companies like DeepMind and uh, OpenAI and Google Research who are doing this by bypassing the physics completely and learning with data and using AI, which I think will be a good thing for us because it just means that, you know, we can do these things better without necessarily
0: needing really complicated physics. As you were speaking, I thought or thought to myself that there's also this like equity and justice layer underneath some of these conversations about where's the money going in climate tech or, you know, do we have robust ways of measuring and mapping other parts of the world besides the U.S.? It's like mitigation is obviously very important, but climate change is happening now in a lot the global south, and spending enough money to make sure that we're helping folks adapt to what's actually already happening is is critical. Alongside having that future-oriented perspective of let's make sure that we mitigate as well.
1: Yeah. And as COVID has shown us, like, it's not really like them versus us. It's like us as a society, our supply chains are spread out enough that any problem anywhere in the world will at some point percolate to us. It's not as like we are completely insulated from it. For example, if there was a flood in Taiwan, that resulted in semiconductor factories being shut down. Like we wouldn't have cars here, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> right. wherever you know, if there's a huge flood in Bangladesh that affects Taka, like you know, Zara is not going to have any more clothes. There's deep interconnections in our supply chain. Not to mention, you know, the refugee crisis, like, you know, if there is a huge flood in Southeast Asia, the refugees are eventually going to come to one country and be a burden on their social systems. So all of these things, you know, mean that any big climate event is a global disaster, you know, not a local disaster. So we need to prepare for it together or, you know, we'll all suffer from it.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful perspective. I think we'll close on that. Thanks so much for, for joining Subit. It's been wonderful.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed thinking about all the questions.
0: (laughs) Great. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting-edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.